I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. In this episode, we welcome a very special guest. Kirsten Hillman is Canada's Deputy Ambassador to the United States, and she comes with a lot of trade experience. Kirsten was formerly the Assistant Deputy Minister of Trade Agreements and Negotiations. We'll ask the Ambassador about the latest in the steel and aluminum tariff saga, the USMCA, and much more, all right here on this episode of The Trade Guys. We're in for a serious treat today because we have Kirsten Hillman, the Deputy Ambassador of Canada to the United States here with us today. Ambassador, it's so great to have you here with us. Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here. All right. Now, to put this in perspective, trade guys, U.S. goods exports to Canada in 2018 were just under $300 billion, while goods imports from Canada were around $320 billion. Canada is the largest U.S. export market and the largest market for U.S. agricultural exports. In 2017, services exports to Canada from the United States totaled $58 billion, and services imports from Canada were about $33 billion. So this is a big trading partner. It's our biggest trading partner. And one that is reasonably even, if you count services. We don't have the 2018 numbers right, so, so yet. Bill, so even. we're good with Canada. We like Canadians in America. We're friends with Canadians. We all know Canadians. Bill, I believe you have Canadian heritage. My mother was Canadian. I mention it every chance I get. Yeah. I so, love you know, Canadians. And, and many of us are thinking about you know a second home in Montreal at some point. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 Nova Scotia, I think. All right, uh, yeah, or uh, Vancouver. I mean, it's all Vancouver, good. It's yes. a beautiful, wonderful place, has great sports teams, great food, great beer, great cities, you know, on and on. We love Canada, Deputy Ambassador. We love it. Well, so that's great. Why is there friction? What's going on? Trade guys, tell me. Trade guys, Scott. Well, well, look, this is a large, productive commercial relationship that we have with Canada. They've probably been our biggest trading partners in 1789, if we actually had the numbers to show it, the, because the, the exchanges across the border are mutually beneficial. And it's a wide and deep relationship uh, on the security standpoint, as well as the economic standpoint. So the United States is blessed to have a neighbor like Canada far more than we ever acknowledge. Now, it does have its irritants, like any relationship. Think of this as a long, very sound marriage. There are still some things after nearly 40 years that irritate my wife about me, and uh, <laughs> I probably haven't fixed them all yet. And, yeah. And are you going ways, to give us a list? This well, is interesting. I'm sure she could. <laughs> okay. I don't irritate my wife at all after 20 years of marriage. That is absolutely not true. Uh, Ambassador, we are <laughs> blessed to have you here with us today. Can you tell us what, what's going on between the United States and Canada right now? Sure. I was afraid you were going to ask me about uh, irritating my husband, but I'm much happier uh, answering that question. Um, what is going on between the United States and Canada? I think I will, I'd will. i like to, to start where Scott started, which is this is the biggest bilateral trading relationship in the world. Um, As President Trump would say, it's huge. It's huge. Yeah. And it's it's two over $2 billion a day, $2 billion a day in bilateral goods and services trade. So... Uh, and, and there are all the others, you know, the security and the border and our, our participation in NATO and in NORAD and and fighting the opioids crisis. I mean, I could go on and on. And that's one of the privileges of living here and working here with our team, not only in D.C. and across the across the whole country, is that I see 
all of the ways in which we're working together all the time. So a profoundly deep relationship as trading partners, as defense partners, and as, as family members in, in so many ways. And I think that that goes to the to the question of what about these irritants? Because when, when, when something is so huge and significant, small features of that relationship that aren't going well, I think get amplified. And, and also when we have tensions uh, because we're not maybe on the same page or communicating very well with respect to what is going to be in our mutual interest, those things have that much more importance. They're that much more economically important, or if it's a security matter, it's that much more important for our security and of, of, our, of our citizens or our environment or our shared you know, resources. Um, I think that's why. The magnitude of the relationship leads to the, the intensity of the challenges, but they are infinitesimal compared to everything that's going well. But I think the frustration on the U.S. side is that, I mean, that's all true, but we don't seem to be able to get them behind us. You know, lumber has been going on now for, what, 30 years, I think. I remember when I worked on the Hill uh, in the 80s, lumber first came up, and we are still arguing about lumber, and the issues are still roughly the same as they were before. So, Bill, why can't we get these issues behind us? I don't know. I'm just uh, Scott. Do you it's, have? It's uh, one of the. It's one of those mysteries, and maybe it. Maybe it just is a reflection of how good the rest of the relationship is on on a routine basis that we have some things we can't solve. But look, ultimately there are different sovereigns, there are different nations of different histories, and and it usually comes when there's a different approach that the policymakers have taken. I mean, the core of softwood lumber is really uh, the the issue of of who owns the trees and and how you manage uh, uh, the, the the subsidy programs, which which exist on both sides. The border. So, and the same same with the, with with uh, some of the agriculture programs. These are policy choices that Canada put in place a long time ago. It had the political support to do it. Likewise, U.S. irritants of Canada. You know, our, our pharmaceutical industry has some very different views about how things ought to be in Canada. That's a political consensus that we arrived at in the United States. But because we're different in 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 structure and organization and in outcomes of of the government policy, we wind up th- these things wind up being you know some little burrs under the saddle. Yeah. Yeah, I know, but this is the only other country in the world that has a viable professional football league. Like, so they really have something in common with us. I mean, you but know, their rules are different, Andrew. Slightly, slightly. I, guess, I mean, I we, we actually we actually pay attention to Canadian football now because there's some innovation in it that you know we need to look at uh, for here in the United States. We're going to go to three downs, you think? Is that Well, there's a whole situation about, you know, punting or not punting. And, you know, my son, as you all know, is a punter, a four and a half star punter going off to college next year. You know, so we pay a lot of attention to what's going on in Canada. Even Johnny Manziel wound up drawing a paycheck there for a little while. So. A little while. It was a, brief, <laughs> it was a brief moment for Johnny. Johnny football. But no, I mean, really, we've got issues with Canada. It's our closest training partner. From your perspective, Ambassador, why don't you think we can put some of these issues behind us? Well, you know what? Instead of talking about some of the more perennial issues, maybe we could turn to talk about the issues of today and the sure. issues of the last, let's say, year or so, which Great is the, the renegotiation of the of the NAFTA. The renegotiation of the NAFTA, what you call USMCA in Canada, we call CUSMA. Uh, Mexico calls it TMEX, so we each have our own our own lingo. It used to just be called NAFTA, and now it's like called a lot of things. Right. USMACA. 
is my you favorite. You smacker. <laughs> you <laughs> put, that sort of puts it right in its you place. You put that, that, that's new. Scott Miller has not put that one out yet. That's well, good. I, you smacker. I'm, I'm voting for All you, right, Mr. So you smacker. Yumi, Yumi that's, that's the name of the episode, right? Yumi, our producer's taking notes over there. That's you smacker. He okay. stole it from Lori Wallach, I it, think. It, oh, really? It's, it's well, been floating out there. Look, but. Bob Dylan says a lot of things, and I use them all the time. It's okay. We're good. All right. So... On that note, I think, you know, we spent a lot of time in a challenging negotiation for that deal. And we got ourselves to a place where, at least speaking for our country, we are very happy with the outcome. We feel that this has taken an agreement that was hugely outdated. From my perspective, having, you know, been in Ottawa with a negotiating team on our agreement that we negotiated with Europe, with the TPP, looking at these other agreements that were being modernized, that we were including really important provisions that respond to the way business is doing business today. And here we were with our most important agreement with our most important trading partners. And it was, we couldn't, we couldn't even administer the government procurement, you know, provisions because they just weren't functioning anymore. So updated, I think some innovations that are good, and that is all terrific. You know, there's nothing we would like more than to move along with that agreement, but we can't. Uh, We can't. We can't because we are still facing tariffs uh, on our steel and aluminum under Section 232, and within our country, um, that is sort of the number one uh, thing that Canadians are thinking about and talking about when they think about our relationship with the United States. They, I think there was a there was a sense that during the negotiations, okay, this is in place now, and the president even said so, this is in place now, but when the negotiations are done, they will come off. They're causing important, you know, challenges and, and cost challenges within our industry and downstream industries, and they're still there. And, and that is not a perennial kind of problem that comes up and goes away and comes up and goes away and we try and discuss it over, you know, as our our respective domestic policies evolve. That is a fundamentally, um, a fundamental challenge, I think, to our trading relationship and 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 hopefully not, but potentially, you know, seeping so, over into so other parts. So what's your strategy for making them go away? My personal strategy? Our, our government? Your government strategy. Look, our, our government is... is is saying that they have to go. If we want to normalize trade relations, they have to go. Um, our, our minister said as, as recently, I think as Minister Freeland, Minister of Foreign Affairs, and our ambassador here as recently as last week, you know, it's, it's, it looks very difficult to move forward at all with the, the new NAFTA, with those tariffs in place. Our government's heading into an election in October, makes that even more complicated. But even without the election, I mean, there's no justification for these, for these tariffs and they've got to go. So, by, by the way, we have a standing invitation to Minister Freeland who has spoken as CSIS before over the years in her various roles as a leading journalist and other things. And so we have a standing invitation for her to come speak at CSIS and to be part of the Trade Guys podcast. Okay, I'll let her know. Can I ask, pursue one thing here? Yeah. Ambassador McNaughton mentioned the other day that Canada is considering uh, revising its retaliation list. Uh, which is a logical thing to do. I, other countries have done this from time to time. Can we commit a little news here? Can you tell us what's going to happen? 
who's on, who's off? No, I actually I can't because those decisions are not are not finalized. But I'm just we, hoping for a headline. You know, oh man, look, the ambassador does have allies, important allies, in many members of the United States Congress who also have at the top of their list of concerns the uh, steel and aluminum tariffs on both Canada and Mexico. So you've got some allies there. Interestingly, when I talk to members of Congress and staff, the two concerns they have are are the steel and aluminum tariffs interfering with North American trade, and then second, if you're an ag state senator or a congressman, you're a lot concerned about the market access we gave away by tearing up the TPP mm-hmm. in the beginning of the administration. And uh, so there's a lot of questions for, for this administration about, hey, geniuses, uh, you, you walked away from this market access. How do you get it back? But more importantly, I think they're with you on aluminum and steel. What's your sense No, I think that's it? right. I think that we have we have strong allies. There are a lot of people on the Hill, in Congress in particular, that are, are just getting up to date on, on these trade files. And that takes a little bit of time. But I think they're hearing from their constituents and saying, look, this, it's more costly. It's, it's harder to do business. We're having supply shortages. You know, I think that's really important. And it's not only the steel and aluminum sectors, but it's the sectors that are being hit by the counter tariffs from us, from Mexico, from the Europeans. So I think that that, that is, it, it resonates as well. Um, and, and, I, and yeah, no, there's no doubt we have strong allies. And I guess just just to, and I don't mean to take up the whole conversation with steel and aluminum, but one of the things that I find most perplexing about this is that the challenge that our steel industry faces, the American steel industry in Europe as well, is, is a problem of overproduction and largely created by China. And the fact of having taken this measure to uh, address the challenges faced domestically on overproduction in the United States has had a very skewed uh, effect. And that effect is that the one country who is responsible, maybe there's more than one, but the, a country that is primarily responsible for the problem we face in that industry in our countries is the one who is actually really not suffering at all from these 232 measures, right? At all. We've got the, we've got you know, we were in a position before where we were ramping up joint efforts internationally to to try and, and, and put pressure on China. When we as countries are facing, you know, tariff attack, if you will, then we're not in a position to do those cooperative efforts as much anymore. It's not that we're not willing to, but we have to we have to put our energies elsewhere, which is trying to get the tariffs off. Right? So you, but you've taken some actions against the Chinese, haven't we you? Have, we safeguard have. action, we have. right? But yeah, absolutely. But just just to, just to finish my my sort of my list here. So there's 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 the diminishment, I would say, of, of uh, our ability to spend as much time on the joint actions. We're doing domestic safeguard actions in response to our domestic industry and petitions they've made. And we have, you know, we have some of the toughest uh, ADCBD duties in the world in place vis-a-vis, vis-a-vis China. We also have a situation where the way the remissions are being administered by commerce, we have I th- in the first, I think it was four months, and I, I, I might get these numbers a little bit wrong, but I think it was in the first four months of the 232 tariffs impeding in place, 40% of a of, of volume of trade equivalent to 40% of last year's imports of Chinese steel were subject to remission orders. And for Canada, it was 2%, right? And aluminum's even worse. So, so there's this skewing of imports, there's this skewing of international supply, and the other thing that's happening, we're getting more and more reports of from within our country and from folks on the ground here in the U.S., is that 
some of our manufacturers who were importing raw materials and manufacturing sort of small manufacturing. So, you know, kegs and uh, small metal manufacturers like nails and axles and that kind of thing are no longer competitive because they just can't get the product. And so what's happening is that the, their purchasers, their customers are buying straight from third countries, predominantly China. So how can this possibly be you know, for all the all these reasons, plus the fact that Canada is not a national security threat and we're a great ally and we have an integrated industry, we're the best customer of the United States for steel, right? The U.S. sells more steel to us right. than every other country combined. It's just, I'm throwing up my hands. People all who are listening can't see that, but my hands are going up in the air. I'm throwing up my hands because, because we don't quite know what to do with this. You're making well, me nervous too, because I think what you just said is our beer and your beer is in Chinese kegs. Yes. Well, some of it. Okay. Well, that's that's something. To be this is one of the about. national security risks we had not encountered before this. <laughs> <laughs> I want to go back a step. I mean, I, I think the kindest thing you could say about the administration, our administration's policy, is that it's clumsy. But I mean, I, I think that we've all analyzed the problem the same way. It's an over, it's a global overcapacity problem, uh, and there's really only one culprit, and it's, it's China. So the issue then becomes, how do you deal with that? I think the administration's logic, which which is I don't think has turned out to be correct, but it has been, well, if we could just get everybody else to do what we're doing to the Chinese, which is through anti-dumping countervailing duty laws or or other restrictions, uh, basically make them make them eat their own surplus, uh, because you know what we did when we pushed them, you know, out of our market effectively on um, via ADCVD cases is all that stuff just went somewhere else. It went to Europe, it went to Canada, it went to other places in Asia. Uh, and so the right answer, I think, in Trump's mind is all those, other, all those other countries should do what we're doing and push it all back on China with the same kinds of restrictions. And I think the Trump argument would be, you've done that. The Europeans have done that. So from his point of view, this is a strategy that's working. No, but but we were doing it before, right? Yeah. So the duties that we had in place vis-a-vis -vis China, and the tracing that we had in place, and the cooperation that we do with the with the U.S. government with respect to uh, ensuring uh, that we are in our integrated supply chains, not using underpriced Chinese steel, that was all in place before. So and, and it's working so well that we've implemented essentially punitive measures that we won't withdraw, which is really odd. Well, I said the best thing you can say about it is that it's clumsy. Uh, but conceptually, uh, it's trying to get at the problem in a different way. I mean, your suggestion was that we should all get together and work together, which is sort of what the OECD and Steel Committee is trying to do to come up with a plan, uh, a global plan to deal with global overcapacity, which I've always thought is the right answer, uh, just from a policy point of view. But that's slow going, and I don't know if we're going to get there. I mean, I sort of understand why the administration has done what it does, what it's done, even though you end up arguing that it has, isn't really being effective. Well, Canadian diplomats often work with uh, similar like-minded parties in a variety of settings and come up with sort of out-of-the-box solutions. So do you think there is one when it comes to steel overcapacity? I mean, Bill's right about the OECD process. Great idea, right group of countries, bad execution. Is there a way that, that, we get, that helps us all get out of this, back away from the, from, the, from the edge and start doing what's sensible for our economies, even if the United States can't figure it out first? 
I think so, but there, everybody has to come to the table, right? right? And everybody has to be playing by the same rules. Because as I said, we have a situation where the volume of Chinese imports into the United States, volume equal to 40% of last year's imports, are now no longer subject to 232 tariffs, where we are. Mm-hmm. So doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. So you're arguing that the United States should impose more tariffs. Well, what I'm saying is I think we should be working with our partners to solve the problem where it lies. This has been, that's a tactful way of making the point that we've made more bluntly in the past, which is our president is not really a big believer in multilateral action. Bill, you started this by saying, you know, at best our strategy is clumsy, but you also said that maybe he's right about trying to get us all together and pin China. And Ambassador, you're saying, you know, Canada and the United States should be trying to. Yeah. And I think the measures are also about incentivizing increased steel production in the United States, sure. right? I mean, that's 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 part of the, the objective. And and that was an objective that carried through in aspects of our, our negotiation with the NAFTA. And it was those are objectives that we support wholeheartedly. We have we have uh, we have such an integrated industry, and we are, as I say, your best customer by far. Why wouldn't we want a healthy, robust U.S. steel industry? We have a very complementary industry. We don't make the same things you make. You don't make the same things we make. So Canada wins when the U.S. wins. Like There's, there's no doubt about that. I think my comment would be, then let's do a, a fortress North America or a fortress Canada-U.S. steel industry. Let's do that. Let's not tear each other down because ultimately that's what these fights end up being and, and do, do you know put ourselves in a situation where a conversation on how to find solutions is very difficult. Let's put ourselves in a situation where we're actually trying to join hand, you know, join arms and, and solve it together. This notion of the complementarity of the industries is something that was envisioned in NAFTA, and it's probably the biggest benefit of NAFTA. NAFTA served as a set of rules for production in North America that allowed industries to specialize in what they did best. And the North American steel and aluminum industry is highly specialized and highly in- integrated at, at, at various levels. So uh, the ambassador's proposing, if this is a Canadian solution, at least in concept, I think there are supply chain managers all across North North America, who would stand up and but cheer that, for it. Actually, that raises a really good question if we can slightly switch topics, uh, which is to go to autos. I mean, the, the NAFTA concept was an integrated North American market. Mm-hmm. And over 25 years, we've really moved significantly in that direction. Now we have new auto rules, and uh, we just put out a report on this subject that uh, suggests that you know the administration is trying to go in a different direction. They're trying to bring manufacturing specifically inside the United States at the expense of Canada and Mexico. Are you guys concerned about that? Yeah, I wouldn't. I don't. I don't actually. I don't see it that way. And I think that we. Uh, so we worked very hard uh, with our industry during the process of constructing those rules and trying to find a way of constructing those rules that would not only meet the policy objectives uh, of the U.S., um, that would be manageable for Mexico, but that would also, I think, leverage the Canadian advantage. And we are co- we are very much confident that they do. And the reason that they do is, I mean, this is this is fairly technical stuff here, but there are provisions in those rules that, first of all, incentivize the use of North American steel and aluminum, which is good for all of us. Uh, they change the way the value is counted in a vehicle to count innovative aspects, right? ITs, the, the stuff of the vehicles of the future. They're, they value those components of a vehicle 
in a way that is more reflective of their real value in that product. Of course, the old rules didn't do that because the, that did, our cars weren't our cars are essentially going to become computers very soon, and they certainly weren't back in the day. The NAFTA was negotiated, right? Um, they also have provisions with respect to um, labor and 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 wages. And for Canada, we're we're a high you know we pay high wages. We have a highly highly educated uh, workforce in the auto sector. How can that not be? Uh, useful for us. So, so, so to answer your question, I think the rules are they're different. They will require an adjustment, um, an adjustment. The industry will have to have to adjust to them, uh, as they did when the when the original rules in the NAFTA were created. But I think that they will actually incentivize North American production, and they they won't they won't be hurting us. Well, that's interesting. The, the report we put out essentially concluded that, from an American point of view, in the short run. It would lead to uh, more investment uh, inside the United States, more production inside the United States, more jobs inside the United States. But in the long run, it would make the industry globally less competitive. Well, you know, I'd be interested to look at your analysis, and I apologize. I'm sure I should have we before. We can get you a copy. I can't believe that I didn't read it before. I got we will I, get you I, the I apologize. But the ambassador's It's a great point cure here. for insomnia, I can tell you that. The, the point that the ambassador made is the auto industry is not the same as it was in 1994. Exactly right. And may not exactly be the same right. and probably won't be the same in another 20 years. So a lot of this will have to play out. And modernizing the rules every once in a while is a good idea. Now, whether, whether production in low-wage countries like Mexico Mexico is a feature, as the auto industry thinks it is, or a bug, as the Trump administration seems to think it is, has yet to play out and, and could play out in a way that hurts competitiveness. But this is a very fast-changing industry. May I just make a comment on that? So, sure. So since the NAFTA was concluded until we renegotiated it, we had, I believe, 12 at least, maybe more than 12, but it's around 12 uh, renegotiations of NAFTA rules of origin. And we had these successive series of conversations where we looked at the rules of origin under our agreement and we said, are they still making sense for the way we're doing business? autos or everything? Everything. Everything. I can't say for a fact that we did it in autos, to be honest. Um, But what we have just gone through in trying to ensure that the rules for autos make sense for our policy objective as nations today, I think is, is, is a very important component of what we've just done. And hopefully, we'll make it more um, top of mind, I guess, for us as this particular industry, as we all know, is going to evolve at a pace that we can't even quite imagine yet, I think, or at least many of us can't. Uh, I think that it, it, it gives us a, a bit of a, an example of what we could do in, on a more frequent basis. I want to ask um, the trade guys a question because this this might be a little bit undiplomatic. I don't want to put you in an undiplomatic uh, situation here, Ambassador, but to quote Walter Mosley, the great author, Walter Mosley, when compared to the United States, isn't Mexico and Canada always outnumbered and always outgunned? And Trump knows that. And in a standoff with the United States, Mexico and Canada aren't going to win. Isn't this President Trump flexing his muscles and saying, you're not going to win, and I'm going to get you the best deal. And this is good politics for him with his base and could potentially lead to uh, leveraging all of this for more jobs in the United States. Is that what he's trying to do here? I'd say yes. That's probably the way he thinks about it. It's terrible diplomacy. And it has a whole but bunch is this, of, is it this produces what a lot of collateral damage, but I think that's the way he thinks about it. Right. Yeah. 
You look, uh, our president was a real estate developer before he's got his current job, and uh, he really understands leverage at a very deep level in the real estate business. And it, it appears to me he always tries to apply leverage in any situation. And it's one of the reasons that I think the president has a very economics-focused foreign policy in general. Ask him a foreign policy question about troop deployment, and he'll he'll give you an answer about about uh, uh, military equipment sales, <laughs> or you know. So so, uh, but but he does he does look for leverage a, a anyway. Uh, now look, this the partnership in North America has gotten very deep and very productive for everyone, and so well, yes, on a uh, on a straight sort of America first approach. I mean, yes, I I, I agree with Bill. The president probably does see it as. We'll we'll work to try to solve the problem, and then we'll do it our way as a as an as an operating philosophy. Uh, the the fact is, uh, being in a good neighborhood helps everyone in the United States, and and so I think in in practice, when the president comes to a conclusion, it winds up he leaves something on the table for almost everybody, and and see, despite declaring victory. One of our maybe you can comment on this, Ambassador. One of our conclusions, looking at the negotiations that have been completed which were Korea and USMCA or CUSMA, uh, was that he does tend to fold at the end. Uh, was that your observation? Um, I think what I would say is that every negotiation, so this negotiation was different than any negotiation I had participated in over my career of you know 20 some years negotiating in many respects. But in some respects, it was exactly the same. And the way in which it was exactly the same was you work on, you know, say there's a, a hundred issues and there's a hundred issues being worked on and they're sort of moving ahead or they're not moving ahead. And at some point in time, you get to a point where you really can't get any further unless you put everything that's remaining on the table and look at it as a package and figure out what your package of, of uh, outcomes is going to be. And that's exactly what happened here. So. I don't. I wouldn't say cave. I wouldn't say anybody caved. I would say there was a package that was could make sense for everybody that was found, and that's that's no different than in any other negotiation I've been in. All right. So, a question for all of you: How large of a factor will the USMCA deal or USMACA um, be in the Canadian and U.S. elections? Which you know, you guys have an election coming up. We have an election that we're beginning to be very obsessed with. How big of a deal is uh, the new NAFTA going to be, or USMACA, as we're now calling it, um, going to be in this in, in our election cycles? So in our election cycle, I would I sort of harken back to what I said a moment ago, which is it's not the Cusma or the USMACA uh, that will be the first conversation in our election. What will be dominant? will be the 232 tariffs should they remain in place. Um, because I just don't think we'll get to the NAFTA conversation until that has found its way to be solved. Look, American voters are very practical. They vote the pocketbook. Jobs in the economy is always the top reason to select a candidate, and so uh, jobs in the economy will be a will be the big story in our tw in our twenty twenty presidential elections and congressional elections. Certainly, the president will declare victory on USMACA and consider it a, a great and luxurious accomplishment. It's USMACA, stupid. It is now. <laughs> That's right. Uh, but but uh, for me, the interesting part of this is his Democratic opponent will need to do something different 
uh, as as the Democrats to position themselves against the president. In other words, to create the contrast, I think Democrats need to rethink trade policy because we had this oddity in the 2016 election where all the three candidates, the three candidates won uh, state contests: uh, Hillary Clinton, Bernie Sanders, and Donald Trump, and they were all opposed to TPP. They all thought NAFTA needed to be renegotiated. So it was really was not a point of contrast. But there was only one candidate who could articulate a message that Americans could understand. I think actually Senator Sanders did a pretty good job. But to have a small organization and win 24 state contests is not nothing. Yeah, but um, I don't know so. what he's. I don't know what his message is on trade now. And I, that's the key. You know, same I, that, as Trump's. Probably he's probably the same as Trump I mean, pretty I, much I, on I, trade. Okay, so his message is the same on trade, but I don't hear him articulating anything um, that really resonates the way Trump resonates with with trade? Well, that's true. But think of it as a point of contrast. How will the Democratic candidate contrast him or herself versus President Trump in the real life? I don't know the answer to it, but it's an interesting question that I think we ought to follow pretty closely. Very interesting. Well, my answer to your question is, first of all, I think the whole thing, for us, because ours is, our election is a year later than, than Canada's, I think the whole thing will be superseded by whatever happens on China, which is not only much bigger economically, but also an area where there's, I think, much more public support for what he's trying to do on China uh, than there is, a, there is in some other areas. Uh, so I think that, you know, if... If uh, USMCA gets done, meaning that the Congress approves it, Canada and Mexico approve it, it becomes, you know, implemented. It'll he'll use it as a great victory and a, a testimony to his negotiating skills. Uh, my guess is that the Democrats will probably, by and large, talk about something else, uh, and it'll be mostly about China, which I think will probably not be better. Than, then than it is now uh, in many respects. Or the domestic agenda, which is always the, a, a big topic in our elections. I mean, the, the signs from the Democrats right now on on uh, the new NAFTA, as they call it, they don't even call it, it's, for, it's not Kuzma, Yusmaka, or USMCA. For a lot of the Democrats, it's NAFTA 2.0. But I think one of the quiet little things that's happened is, is in the Democratic Party is some, has been some appreciation for uh, the value of the old NAFTA, after 25 years of attacking it, uh, they have, you know, begun to realize that it's not all bad. It's a strange and, new and, 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 and that if, it, in particular, it's driven by the by the realization that if we got rid of it and had nothing, uh, that would be bad, and it would be a political disaster, and Trump would blame them. I mean, that may not be may not be their fault, but he would he would certainly blame them. So there's a lot of activity going on now, trying to figure out how to get to yes. By get, getting to yes means saying that what the president has done is not good enough. Again, it's an impl- I was, we were talking about, I was talking about this earlier in the day. It's, it's not a flawed concept. It's an implementation flaw. He hasn't done it right. He's missed a step. He didn't do this. He didn't do that. So we're going to fix it. You know, and if they can fix it uh, to their satisfaction, then they'll be able to a take credit uh, and b partly vote for it, but also sort of push it aside and move on to other things. Well, this is all issues we're going to have to be watching and continue to talk about. Uh, Ambassador Hillman, thank you so much for being here with us today and enduring the trade guys. Uh, we hope you'll come back and keep talking about these issues with us. I will. Thank you, trade guys. It's been a lot of fun. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. 
We're also now on Spotify, so you can find us there when you're listening to the Rolling Stones or you're listening to Tom Petty or whatever you're listening to. Thank you, Trade Guys. Thank you. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.